or being able to read it with our own eyes. And so uh, get a Bible. And then if you don't own a Bible, please consider that uh, Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Take it home and make a good friend of it. First Peter chapter four, single verse this morning, verse eight. Peter writes by the Holy Spirit. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Lord, your word tells us that you are the potter and that we are the clay. And we love that that is so. Thank you for your interest in our lives. Thank you for the conforming work that you do in our lives, even the conforming pressures that you bring into our lives to make us more and more into your image and into the image of your son. We certainly have no interest in conforming you to our image. And we thank you, Lord, this morning for every intent of yours behind every verse in this book. And we pray that what is to be fashioned of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength by verse 8 of chapter 4 of First Peter, that that would be accomplished in our lives today, the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One day, a middle-aged single man was out fishing from the shore, and as he was doing that, a frog cried out to him, declaring, If you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess and marry you. Well, that didn't happen every day, so he walked over, and he reached down, and he picked up the frog, and he slipped the frog into the front pocket of his shirt. And the frog cried out again, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess, marry you, and you'll be the envy of all your friends. He still refused to kiss the frog. And the frog continued to press him. And finally, the frog asked the man why he continued to refuse to kiss her. And he said, at this point in my life, I'd rather have a talking frog. I know, it has layers to it, doesn't it? It just kind of settles on you by the, the second. Someone else wrote, the more people I meet, the more I love my dog. Someone else has said, some people are alive only because it's illegal to kill them. We could go on and on with sayings like this. Marriage is a three-ring circus. Engagement ring, wedding ring, suffering. Someone has said. So what do all these sayings have in common? Well, they have something in common in that they communicate that human relationships can be complicated. And they can be challenging. And in this verse, in verse 8, Peter tells us that our relationships with one another as Christians are no exception uh, to that. 
And Peter writes to us, and above all things, have a fervent love for one another. And he's writing here specifically about relationships that we have with our fellow Christians. And he commands us that we are to have not only a love for one another, but we are to have a fervent love for one another. Not just a uh, mere toleration of one another, but a fervent love for one another. Not a phony or on our face or outward love for one another, a hypocritical love for one another that doesn't impact our hearts, but a genuine love for one another, a fervent love for one another. Much less that our relationships with one another would be marked by suspicion or cynicism. And he makes this point of not only calling upon us to love one another, but to love with a fervent love. And because he's trying to make a point here. And the word fervent is a very interesting one in the Greek language, the word that he uses here. And the word means at full stretch. It means to be strained. It's a word that was used to describe the muscles of an athlete in in straining to win a race. And I think in all of our minds, uh, most all of us have certainly watched the uh, Summer Olympics where we watch these sprinters. I mean, they're as lean as greyhounds. You can see every muscle in their body, whether they're male or female. And you see as they come to the end of this uh, 100-meter sprint and they begin then to lean into the tape. And if you ever see in a Sports Illustrated or ESPN magazine or something where they take a snapshot. You see the veins are bulging, the muscles. You can see them so perfectly defined in this straining and the fullness of their effort to win the race. And what Peter is saying here is that we are to give love for one another as Christians, that kind of an effort, and to do it with that giving it our all and not holding anything back. And he says as much when he says, and above all things, if anything is going to get dropped as a priority in our lives, then this is the thing that should never be dropped, the something that we should never become slack regarding or to neglect. This love for one another is not to be neglected. And this is the kind of love that we're to bring into our relationships with one another as Christians. It is to be a deep, continual, intense, no matter how much it stretches me, whatever it requires of me, love. Now, why in the world would the Apostle Peter, this guy knew Christians and he knew himself very well also, why in the world would this, he tell us to love one another at full stretch, except that we will be greatly stretched in learning to love people in this way. And why is such a stretching experience, why is it such a stretching experience to love people in this way? And he reveals that to us in the passage as well. And the simple reason is, is that not only is every single person in the world a sinner, but every single Christian is also a sinner, the best of us, the most committed of us, 
the most disciplined of us, the most sober-minded and circumspect of us as Christians, we're still all sinners. And why else would he, would he need to tell us in regard to our relationships with one another that love will cover a multitude of sins except this were true? And so this command of Peter would be effortless to keep to love one another with a fervent love, except for the fact that Christians sin. If Christians didn't sin, then it would be an effortless commandment to keep that commandment. But it is the fact that we do sin that complicates everything, and it makes all of this a challenge. Now, the Bible teaches that because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives as Christians, that each and every one of us has the power to never sin again the rest of our lives. And that's important to realize. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. We now have the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. I need never sin the rest of my Christian life. Because of the greatness of what the Holy Spirit brings into my life. And thus, if we do sin, we can't blame God for it. We can't blame other people for it. But the Bible teach, also teaches and teaches equally strongly that every single one of us as Christians falls short of perfection. And that we do so on a daily basis. Every single day. We sin, and to sin means simply to miss the mark. It's an old English term that was used for, let's say, an archer who would take an arrow out of his quiver, put it to, onto the bow and the string, and aim for that bullseye. And if he hit the bullseye, he didn't sin. But if he missed the bullseye, he sinned. That's what sin is, to miss the bullseye. It's to miss... Uh, perfection. And so a person, can, and, and effort doesn't, doesn't factor into it. A person can say, well, I tried as hard as I could to hit the bullseye, and I missed the bullseye, and so effort plus a miss means a make. Now, now you're talking about, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be offensive at the moment. I reserve the right to be later. But you're talking about an awful lot that is in our culture that make believe that to miss the mark, even though we try as hard as we can, that somehow that isn't to miss the mark. But it is to miss the mark. And so all of us miss that mark. All of us are less than perfect. And to sin is to be less than perfect, less than being exactly like Jesus. And none of us, even as Christians, can come to the end of the day lay our head on the pillow and say to God, God, I wish I could confess a sin to you today that I had committed. But in every deed and in every word and in every thought and in every motive, I was exactly like Jesus today, and so I have no sin to confess to you. No one, no single individual person uh, finishes a day being able to say that to God, because none of us is perfect in those ways. And Jesus recognized it when he taught us as his disciples to pray on a daily basis. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth even as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he said, And forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive our debtors, those that sin against us. And it's a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So there's that daily asking for forgiveness of our sin from God, even as Christians, just as there is that daily forgiving others of their sins that they commit against us. And the fact of the matter is Jesus knew, God knows, it's not a surprise to him at all, that the best of us as Christians will fall short of perfection on a daily basis. Now, we're never to use that as an excuse to sin. Oh, well, I'm not going to be perfect today, so why don't I be imperfect times three, times ten, times twenty, times a hundred, or just give up the effort altogether. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives not only the power to do God's will, but supplies us with the will, the desire to do God's will. And so that is, that's to ignore that prompting of the Holy Spirit within our lives to say, no, I want to live as Christian and Christ-like a Christian life as can possibly be lived this side of heaven. And so this is never to be used as an excuse to deliberately sin. But the fact of the matter is that we will not be perfect until we are in heaven one day. And in the meantime, we're going to grow a little more like Jesus each day, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. We're a project of God's. We're under construction. And day by day, as we begin the day and pull the veil off of our face, so to speak, and we look into his glory, and he changes us day by day a little bit more into the image of Christ than we were the day before. That's the progression. And because we are sinners, even as Christians, if I come to any relationship with another Christian with the expectation that they're never going to be less than perfect, then that relationship is doomed to failure. Not supremely because of the imperfection of the other person, but because you have brought an impossible expectation into the relationship, the expectation of perfection. It's important to note what Peter isn't saying here. Peter isn't saying that it's okay for a Christian to deliberately live a life dominated by their fleshly nature year in and year out without any spiritual growth and everyone just has to just silently put up with it. Now, the loving thing to do in that kind of a circumstance is to address that situation with the other person. Peter isn't saying that it's okay for a Christian to live a life of willful and deliberate disobedience to the Lord and as a result make victims of other people all around them, including Christians. Everyone just has to put up with it. Now, again, that kind of a situation needs to be addressed. Jesus taught, Matthew chapter 18, 
Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. In other words, if someone is committing sins which truly stumble us in our walk with the Lord or in our relationship with them, then we are to maturely confront that person, talk with them about it, and then try to work it out. It's not talking about whether we have a personality conflict with another person or they rub us the wrong way or because they didn't meet some personal expectation that we have of every other human being. In other words, they didn't do it our way. And why wouldn't they do it our way? Because we do it our way because it is the logical way for something to be done and that we get frustrated with other people as a result of that. He's not talking about that kind of thing. It has to be an actual sin that someone has committed against us and that has genuinely hurt us and stumbled us. So this isn't a verse to, that those who live a deliberate, willful sin, life of sin, are to hide behind. But here's what Peter is saying, that this love is able to overlook the minor faults and shortcomings of other Christians. And that's the meaning of the proverb that he is quoting. And he is quoting from the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 12. And the idea is just that, that love is able to overlook minor faults and shortcomings in other people and not make a big deal out of them because of a wrong expectation concerning people. The Apostle Paul wrote the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter on love. He said, love is patient, as he was defining it. Love is long-suffering. The love that God gives us for other people, it, is a long, it suffers long with people. It is patient with people. It doesn't bring a wrong expectation to the relationship. And when people are... Uh, fall short, it doesn't give up uh, on them. It's interesting that this love that he calls us to have, it isn't blind, but it, it does notice shortcomings. But again, it doesn't make a big deal out of those shortcomings. It loves the person anyway, just the way that they are. We talk about people who are um, maybe engaged to be married, and we just say, well, and, and, and they're just, you know, goo-goo eyes over one another. And they're ignoring all of the flaws in one another's lives. And we say, well, uh, related to that, love certainly is blind, isn't it? Well, they aren't really blind to one another's faults. But what they do have at that moment in time in their relationship, and hopefully it endures, is they have a love for one another that is greater than the relatively small imperfections that they see in one another's lives. And so love can do that kind of thing in our lives. Most of us have experienced it in our lives. And this is the, what he's talking about, what he's saying. For example, how often in our Christian walk we'll hear someone, another Christian, say something that wasn't the best thing to say 
at a given moment or we'll see them do something that wasn't the best thing to do in a given moment, something that was less than what Jesus would say or do in that situation. And sometimes we'll think, wow, that really doesn't characterize his life. He, he, there must be something going on in his life for something like that to come out of his mouth, for him to do what he just did there. That doesn't, that's, not the, that's not the man that I know. That's not the woman that I know. And so I'm going, to be, I'm going to begin to pray for them related to whatever's happening in their life. Or we'll think, well, you know, they did their best in that situation, but one day they'll see that situation with a little greater spiritual maturity and they'll handle it differently than they, once, than they just did. And that kind of thing goes on all of the time. And our relationship with one another as Christians, that recognition that as we continue to grow, we won't continue to do some of the things that we are doing. And then what we'll do when we see someone that is maybe because of a lack of maturity, mishandle something, we'll just privately lift that situation up to the Lord, leave it with him unless he directs us to approach the person over that, realizing that for every person we do that for, someone's extending that same grace to us and our shortcomings. is isn't like all those other Christians that I have to show love toward in their imperfections. <laughs> and that somehow I'm like an island of one, and then there's everybody else. As much as we extend this love to other people, we can be sure that people are extending just as much, if not more, of that love toward us and adding us to their prayer lists as well. It's to walk in a spirit of grace and forgiveness toward other people in the body of Christ. Now, who in the world would want a Christian friend who approached us every time we flubbed, every time we sinned? Hey! What would you do? You'd see him coming and run from him. And a person that thinks that that's their ministry in the body of Christ, they're called sin sniffers. But if they, if they think that it is their place to point out every small imperfection in every single human being, they will end up friendless in this world. And they will end up friendless even in the body of Christ among Christians. Because no one wants every single thing pointed out in their life where they fall short. Things are to be left with the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you had a church of that, the church would be absolutely miserable place to come to. Or if you have individual relationship with a Christian like that, that's a miserable, miserable relationship. And so if that was our practice to point out every small flaw and, and every Christian, we'd have little time to do anything else. Well, in light of this command, what is needed to obey the command? Uh, a love for one another that can cover a multitude of sins. Where in the world do we get a love for people that is greater than their imperfections? Where do we get that kind of a love? Well, the word that's used for love here in this 
passage, and, and we recognize, I think, immediately that we're not going to get it in and of ourselves. For the most part, we are so terminally selfish and, and so terminally uh, uh, stingy related to grace that we cannot in and of ourselves love people in this way. Uh, we are, you may be a one strike, you're out person relationally with other people. You may be a two strike and you're out. You may be a three strike and you're out. You may be a 10 strike and you're out. You may be a 20 strike and you're out. But any relationship that we're going to have with another Christian in this life that's going to be long term, they're not only going to outstrip the one, two and the three, they're going to outstrip the 20. And the 50, it's just the way that it is. So this love does not come from us. Peter is not saying, now listen, I want you to just buckle down, grit your teeth, roll up your sleeves, and do this in your own strength. Well, we would just give up if that was the case. So where do we find the love? The word for love that is used here is the word agape love in the original language. And that refers to the love that comes from God. It's a love that he not only extends to each of us as Christians, but it's a love that he will supply to us so that we can love other Christians the way that he does. This love is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. It's a byproduct of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's, it is something that comes out of our life because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God is love, the Bible says. Galatians chapter 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. So this love comes from God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this love comes from God. Peter's not asking us to love one another and our own natural strength related to this. Well, how in the world do we receive this love into our lives? Well, it comes into our lives, again, as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives when we're born again. But if we sit here this morning, and the person, uh, there may be a few of us here today, or however many it might be, and you say, you know, I've heard a lot of people come to know Christ. You got a hell's angel comes out of this and they gun and this and all and everything. And then somebody else comes out and the Lord delivers them of this and that and all and, and everything. And, and the bondages that they were in. And someone may sit and think to themselves, you know, when I came to know Christ, I didn't come out of all of that, you know, the sex, drug and rock and roll side of things. But I came to Christ and part of the reason I came to Christ was because I burned and destroyed every single relationship in my life because I was so conditional in my love, because I was so niggardly in my love, unwilling to give it and stingy with it. And now I've come to Christ and I see that I bring in the natural that same tendency related to love. But I read a passage like this and it, it just mocks me because I can't even begin to love a person like that. 
was the solution for me, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, <clears throat> Jesus described the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and he said, he said, and he, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon you, and you shall receive power when he does come upon you, and the power to be a witness to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the power to live a life like Christ in all ways. And if you sit and you say, I have never known this kind of love for anyone or for another Christian, then you need to be baptized with God's Holy Spirit. You say, how do I get baptized with the Holy Spirit? Jesus said to us as his disciples, he said, if you being evil as comparatively to our Heavenly Father, as fathers, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the, the, God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? And if you just sit in a room like this, or in your living room, or in your bedroom, or along the canal, or anywhere in the whole wide world, and you say, God, I do not know anything of this love, and I want to. And so I ask you to baptize me with your Holy Spirit and bring the fullness of this love by your Holy Spirit into my life. That is a prayer that he will answer in your life. And he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he'll give you this kind of love for the world and for the body of Christ. And it's not just the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but we receive it even if it's a characteristic of our life, you know, in some measure. We receive it as we would just ask for it in prayer. Lord, I want to have this kind of a love for your people. Lord, I had it for the first six months when I was a Christian before I met so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and, -so, and they just dashed just every expectation that I had of a Christian in this world. And here I am now, five years old in the Lord, 20 years old in the Lord, 40 years old in the Lord, and I am the most cynical person that I know, including my unbelieving friends. They say, I want to know this love, I want your love for your people. I want to have so much love inside of me that I can view their imperfections as comparatively insignificant as opposed to the significant problem of not possessing this kind of love in my life in the light of Peter's exhortation here. And he will produce that in us. Here's the crazy thing about it. The way our flesh works. If I said, all right, you want this from God? Get up out of your seat, and I want you to run around the sanctuary ten times. And then I want you to do it three times on your knees. And then I want you to do it two times, and we'll hit you with whips as you go. If, if there was something like we had to go through some kind of a hazing or some kind of an ordeal for it to happen, we say, all right, I do this, then at the end of this, this happens. Because that's the way the whole world works. God comes in and says, listen, I can put you through all that. 
to give you this. But that's not how I'm going to do it. I'm telling you that if you ask me for this, and it becomes that kind of a priority to you, then I will produce this attitude toward my people in your life. And he will. That's his promise. And so he will take us by the hand and then walk us into what this verse is to look like in our lives. Again, providing us with the power to do it and the desire to do it as well. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, one of the great verses of the Bible, and certainly a great encouragement to prayer, claiming any promise in the Bible. John wrote and he said, This is the confidence that we have before him, that is God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So to ask him for this kind of love is to know that I've asked in accordance with his will. He hears that prayer and he will answer that prayer. And it becomes his responsibility as we bring the willingness, his responsibility to produce it within us. And he will produce it within us. It's good to ask him. And I think not just to say, well, I listen to the sermon and God, if you want to do that, then feel free to do that. But to just stop and say, God, I ask you to produce this, this priority to you, to produce this in my life. And one of the great things about prayer is it gives a reference point related to a request that we're making of God. And then when God answers that prayer, we recognize it for the miracle that it is. And God wants to do this miracle in each of our lives. I've always liked the words to that charity song. Or the love song, uh, Old King James and 1 Corinthians 13, the word instead of love there is the word charity, but the word became ultimately known as kind of giving alms in our culture and, and, and not so much love as it was at the time of the writing of the King James Bible, uh, translating of it, but, but so it was changed to love. But the song goes, if I have not charity, if love does not flow from me, I am nothing. Jesus, reduce me to love. And that's a prayer that he will be faithful to answer. Beautiful, powerful, supernatural miracle in our lives. The body of Christ is held together not by our perfection, but by the very love of God operating through our lives for one another. So human relationships can be very, very complicated, even within the body of Christ. God tells us he has a love that he will supply to us for one another that is greater than all of our imperfections and all of the challenges that we face in loving one another. And it's there for the asking, and he will do it. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we want to give you praise this morning.
so many of us do. And give you thanks for how far you have brought us in this area of love. We thank you for the love that you have given us for yourself. We thank you for helping us to recognize and see how much love you lavish on us every single day. And we thank you, Lord, as we look at our lives today and realize the heart that you have given us for people and for Christians is a heart that we would never have apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we give you praise and we give you thanks this morning for that work. And we pray that it would increase in a greater and greater measure all the way until we see you, Jesus, face to face. And Lord, we pray here this morning as some stand before you and ask for the baptism with your Holy Spirit and ask, Lord, that you would supply them with this love for other Christians. We pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to your word. We know you will be in answering that prayer and bringing them into the beauty of this kind of life and this kind of relationship to possess your heart toward your people, Lord, and the joy and the peace and the fulfillment and the relationship and communion with you that is found in that place. Lord, for each one that cries out to you this morning in this room, for you to supply them with that love, we pray that you would do them, do that and bring them into the beauty of this life. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this single verse. Thank you for what it does in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.